0: local paper reported on it and said that the deal breaker was an inability to agree on how the Lord's prayer should be recited. One church wanted, quote, forgive us our trespasses and the other church wanted, quote, forgive us our debts. And so the editor of the local newspaper wrote that in the end one church went home with their trespasses and the other church returned to their debts and nothing really happened for the kingdom of God which speaks to just how a lack of unity can go a really uh, long way to damaging the witness of the church. And that is why Jesus prayed otherwise, that we would be unified. And so in John 17, we will see Jesus' prayer for our unity this morning. It's a unique passage. We don't get a lot of passages in the gospel where we have Jesus praying for us. Um, And that's exactly what we find in John 17. It's referred to as Jesus's high priestly prayer. It's the longest recorded prayer that we have from Jesus in any of the Gospels. He prays it before the most difficult period of his ministry, of course, before his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. And in this prayer, he prays that his disciples that he has spent three years uh, working with, uh, three years uh, drawing toward the Lord and away from sin, uh, three years calling into this full-time ministry they're about to enter into. Um, As he prays for them, he prays that they will truly know God, and he prays that they will see his glory. But as you get to verses 20 through 23... Jesus starts to pray for those who will become his disciples through his disciples, meaning the disciples are going to go and tell people about Jesus, and they'll become Christians, who tell other people who become Christians, and so on, until you get down to us sitting here in Seaford at Seaford Baptist Church this morning. They have handed the gospel down throughout the ages of the church, and this morning we sit here as those who have been converted, right? Jesus is the first witness. And then he sent out witnesses who led others to Christ, who sent out witnesses, and and so it has gone over the last 2,000 years. And so in this passage, Jesus is truly praying for people like me and you, who would become believers through the spread of the gospel. So uh, once we read it, we'll have some teaching points to work through, but I'll start reading for us in John 17, verse 20. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father God, I pray that you would help us, Lord. Uh, you are our great captain, and uh, we need you to guide us through your word. And so I pray that you would uh, show us, Father, uh, your glory through. Uh, these words this morning. And also, Lord, show us the incredible opportunity that we have to be a witness to the world through the unity that you give us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get to the heart of Jesus' prayer this morning, I want to deal with some theology that is assumed in Jesus' prayer. So here's where we'll start. Teaching point number one, there is otherworldly unity with the Father and the Son. And we see this in verse 21. There is otherworldly unity between the Father and the Son. Jesus says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And this demonstrates for us that as we talk about unity, we have to start with the divine unity in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And I say it's an otherworldly unity because it is literally from out of this world. It's not the only time that Jesus talked like this. In John 10, he's talking about how he's the good shepherd and he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And so he's saying, my father has given the church to me and he is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And then he says, I and the father are one. So what does that mean? When we say that Jesus and the father are one, well, it means first of all that Jesus is equal to the father. He is not just some prophet or messenger. He is equal to God the Father. And if Jesus and the Father are one, it also means that Jesus and the Father share identity and they share nature. While God is three separate persons, he is one God. He is three in one, one in three. The Athanasian Creed puts it this way that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, and the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. John, at the beginning of his Gospel, says, Uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. How can Jesus be with God, and yet He also was God? That only makes sense if the Father and the Son are distinct persons, but totally united in essence and nature. When we say that Jesus and the Father are one, we are also saying that Jesus and the Father are perfectly united in their mission of salvation. They didn't work against each other. There's no part of the Godhead that's unsure of this whole thing where the church is going to be redeemed. No, the Father has given the church To Jesus as his bride. Jesus has laid down his life for the church as the bridegroom, as her Savior. They work together perfectly in their roles within the Godhead to accomplish our salvation for the glory of God. And of course, the Holy Spirit is not left out of this. He draws us uh, to the Lord, He regenerates our heart and gives life to our hearts so that we can have faith in the first place and repent in the first place and he is the seal of our salvation. The Spirit opens our eyes to the glory of the Son, and the Son shows us the glory of the Father. So God is in no way, shape, or form divided against himself. The Son will only do that which brings glory to the Father. The Father will only do that which brings glory to the Son. There is not a hint of division in the relationship between the Father and the Son. You and I have never had a relationship like this in our entire lives. Like even in the most loving parent-child relationships, even in the most loving husband-wife relationships, there always exists the potential for division because you're dealing with two people who are not perfect. But since God is perfectly unified, there is not even the potential for division between the, in, in the relationship between the father and the son. It is truly a perfect love relationship. When Jesus prays in John 17, 21, and he says he is in the Father and the Father is in the Son, he's speaking to that. He is speaking to the otherworldly unity that he has enjoyed with his Father for all of eternity. So that's the, the, the theology of the Trinity, all right, that's in play. And with that understanding in place, we can look to the heart of this section of Jesus' prayer. He prays in verse 21 that just as the Father and the Son are one, that they also may be in us. And in verse 22, he prays that they may be one, even as we are one. And then again in verse 23, Jesus prays that the church would become perfectly one. So who is Jesus praying for? Well, he is praying for everyone who will make up the church in every age between his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and his return. And you see this in verse 20. I do not ask for these only. I'm not just praying for the apostles, Father, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's praying for anyone who would come to Christ through the preaching of the apostles. And that's me and you, right? Peter stands up at Pentecost, preaches the gospel. 3,000 people are saved. Those 3,000 people tell other people who tell other people, until somebody told a guy named Clayton King, who told me on July 14th, 1999, the day that I became a Christian, uh, right? You see how this works? So Jesus is praying for anyone who has been converted as a result of the Great Commission being fulfilled, as a result of his people going out and making disciples of all nations just as he called them to do. So it brings us to our second teaching point. There is otherworldly unity within the church. He's praying that the same otherworldly unity that exists in the union of the Father and the Son would be in the church. And our foundations for unity are found in this passage. A, we are unified by our relationship with God. Jesus prays in verse 21, we would be one as the Father and the Son are one. And he prays that uh, they also may be in us. So in the same way that the Son shares identity and nature and purpose with the Father, Jesus prays that we would be united. And because we are in Christ, we know the Father. And the fact that we have been given this great gospel freedom to truly know God through uh, the Son that binds us together with an otherworldly unity. We are called together by the divine force of the gospel. Right, it it has formed us as a people. Called us, we've been called out of the world by God to believe this great message of reconciliation together. And that's what gives us our otherworldly unity. It's the unity talked about in Ephesians four when Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord you, you can just hear the unity language in that passage, right? I mean, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father, one, 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 one right? Paul is making it clear. You are not to be divided. You are to be together, and then at the end you hear one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all, right? Again, the emphasis is on all. We're going to be a collective that is bound together by our belief in the gospel. Paul says that our unity is the unity of the Spirit, meaning you and I didn't create it, right? Right? the unity comes from God it is given to us by God and as the spirit drew us into union with Christ he has created this otherworldly unity in the church that reflects the unity of the Godhead and we seek to maintain that unity with spiritual discipline and with Christian behavior and with repentance when necessary So we are unified by a relationship with God. Secondly, we see in verse 22, we're unified by the glory of the gospel. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. What does Jesus mean by this? And we need to find out what he means by this, because it's clear that this glory is a basis for the unity that he's praying we would have. The glory you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one. Well, I think that Jesus is referring to the glory of God shown through the life of Christ. We know that God the Father loves to show off his glory through God the Son. Hebrews 1 verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In John 1.14, And the Word, remember Jesus is the Word, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Father's glory is so evident in Jesus' life. But since He's praying this prayer right before the cross, I think we can look to the cross and we can see that of all places, At Calvary, the glory of the Father is shown off in the death of the Son. When the Son died, the glorious mercy and wrath of God was center stage. His gentleness and His might was center stage. His love and His justice was center stage. In the death of Christ, we see the divine wrath that God has toward sin. We look there and we see the Son of God suffering for us. We see what our sin did to Him. And we know that God is serious about sin, that God is a good judge who punishes sin. But we also look there and see that He is so loving and self-giving towards sinners that He would come and He would die in order for them to be connected back to God. So in the death of Christ, we see the glory of the Father On display. His wrath, His mercy, His love, His judgment, it's all there. And then in that death, our sin is atoned for. And the blood of the Son brings us back to the Father, meaning that the glory the Father gave to Jesus is now given to the church through the death of Christ. And because we have seen this glory in the crucified Savior and in the good news of the gospel of the cross, that good news unifies us as the people of God. The glory of God on display at the cross unifies the people of God. And then, lastly, we are unified by the purpose of our unity. Our unity will tell the world about Jesus coming to save them and about the love that he has for the church. Right? We see that in verse 23. I in them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Go up to verse 21. You see it there as well that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so this leads us right into our third teaching point. So so teaching point number two just bleeds into number three. Number three, there is an otherworldly witness that comes from our otherworldly unity. There is an otherworldly witness that comes from our otherworldly unity. Just uh, a couple weeks ago, I took my middle son to Barnes & Noble, and I said, uh, we kind of like a dad-son night out, and I, I said, you can get any book you want in here, you know, under $15. Let's not get too crazy here, okay? Um, You know, inflation and all that, okay? Things cost a little more than they used to. So uh, I'm like, yeah, $15 ought to get you like Ramona the Pest or something, which was like three when I was a kid. But no, we went through the whole place. You know how it goes. It took a while, you know. Um, And uh, he tried to make some chess moves, slip in a Lego set, like tried to do some things. And I was like, no, no, no. It's got to be a book. So anyways, he, he ended up um, not taking home like the works of the Puritans or anything like that, like, you know, his father had hoped, and said he took home where's Waldo, okay? Uh, you remember that guy? Tall, lanky guy with the striped shirt and the little hat, and you got to find him in the sea of people, and he spent the next three hours looking for Waldo. And things have gotten much more complicated. When I was a kid, we just looked for Waldo. Now you, like, look for his weird wizard friend and his dog and all these other things in the picture. So he's just hunting for Waldo. You don't have to hunt here. All right, you you don't have to search for God's divine purpose for the unity of the church. It's clear, verses 21 and 23, the church must be unified, and Jesus prays we would be in order that the world would know that the Father has sent the Son, and He wants us to be unified in order that the world would know that the Father loves the church. It's simple. And what that means is that our unity will make evangelism more effective. When the church is unified, the witness of the church is stronger. The world is not unified. They can't unify about anything, right? Like, I'll notice so... It seems like when you watch TV, like some of the stuff that's going on with the the sexual revolution in our culture that everybody's in lockstep, but they're not. Like If you look under the hood, um, there's fights going on in that tribe. You've got feminists that are angry with transgender women because they're like, hey man, the story of women is not one that a man can grab and just take as their own just because they change body parts. You can't do that. And so there's arguments in the politically liberal tribe where you have feminists fighting with transgender people. There are establishment Democrats who butt heads with the new, more progressive strain in the party, right? And then on the conservative side, there's split opinions about the free market and and just how free it should be. And there's certainly split opinions about President Donald Trump. And there are split opinions about climate change. And you know what I'm saying? Like, you go and you start talking to people in the world, they're not unified about anything, Even on dumb stuff like sports, like just talk to somebody who roots for the poor old Washington Commanders and they'll have three different opinions on who the quarterback might be. And one person, three different opinions, you know what I mean? The world's attempts at unity are futile, and here's why they don't have the spirit. They might be able to get together on some things and be unified and find some common ground for a little while, but it will not take long for the division to start because they don't have the Spirit. In their fallenness, in their brokenness, they're trying to create unity and it doesn't hold. But the church is bound together by the Spirit of God and the glorious Gospel and the salvation we have experienced and the Gospel story that binds us together and when we hold on to that unity, when we maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, it shows the world a unity that is truly otherworldly. Let me be clear about the sort of unity Jesus is praying for here. It is not uniformity. Unity does not mean uniformity in everything. We're not uniform in how we dress. We're not uniform in all of our theological beliefs we're not uniform in all of our opinions about church we're not uniform in the skills and giftings that we have we're not uniform in our socioeconomic status we're not uniform in our education levels right we could go on there's really no circumstances under which this group of people should be here this morning right there's really no reason for a group like this to come together except for the fact that God has sent his son to save people and to save us, and we have stepped out of the world and say, oh, he saved you too, he saved you too, oh yeah, yeah. you got the Great Commission too, you got the Great Commission too, let's all bind up together. This unity that God has given us, let's take it, and let's show the world this great love that he has shown us. Our unity will point the world to the cross, and our unity will stand out because they don't have it, because they don't have the Spirit but we're not uniform. If we were, it would scare people. You know what I mean? Like if somebody walked in here for the first time today and we were all dressed the same and we all talked the same and we all used the same translation of the Bible, they would be like, this feels a little cultish and I'm just going to back on out. You know what I mean? Just head on out of the room. So, um, we're not called to uniformity, we're called to unity. Jesus doesn't pray for uniformity, he prays for unity. A diverse body of believers unified by the glory of the gospel unified by the story of the gospel unified by the holy spirit and we live that out and we maintain that we're not going to seem cultish we'll seem christ-like and our christ-likeness puts the glory of god on display through our unity it will be evidence to a lost world that what we preach is true that jesus really did cross over from heaven to earth to rescue his people let me share this quote from A.W. Tozer on this. He says, if you have 100 concert pianos and you tune the second piano to the first and the third piano to the second and the fourth piano to the third until you have tuned all 100 pianos accordingly, every musician in the room knows where this is going, right? You will still have discord and disharmony. It's not going to help you out. But if you tuned each piano to the same tuning fork, you would have unity and harmony. So too in the body of Christ, when uh, when we tune ourselves and our lives to Christ, we will have unity. I don't need to tune my life to Ben, right? I don't need to tune my life to Anne-Marie. I don't need to tune my life to Jerry and Lana. I need to tune my life to Christ. Every one of you needs to tune your life to Christ, and if we all do that, we will have the unity that Jesus prays for. And so the question becomes, what in the world does this have to do with church membership? Because this is our final Sunday, Uh, in this series, our final Sunday, talking about church membership. We've had three weeks of this. We'll be back in Luke next week. We've talked about how church membership enables us to know who the ambassadors are, who's out there on this mission, right? We know that. We've talked about the baseline standards of what people who belong to churches do. But what about this? What does Jesus's prayer have to do with church membership? Well, I think that what church membership does is it fosters unity within the entire body of Christ. Because first and foremost, membership defines for us the group of people we are supposed to be unified with. When the pastors of the church bring someone forward for membership, we're saying, here's a brother or sister that you now should be concerned with being unified with. When someone leaves our church and they move away, We take their name off of the role by vote. We are saying this is someone that while keep up with them, be Facebook friends, you know, text them, do all that stuff, that's fine. But you are not obligated to be unified to this person any longer. That responsibility has now been removed in the immediate sense because they are not a church member here. But we are obligated. That within our church membership, we work, we strive every day to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I think some people will look at church membership and say, man, come on. Isn't this just a bunch of pastor stuff? Is this really a big deal? Well, when it's not handled properly, I think it gets really confusing for our church members, and here's why. John 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In the church, we're not just to love one another with sort of a uh, neighborly love. The ethic of neighborly love is to love one another as ourselves. We're called to a Christ-like, sacrificial love. Within the church, we don't just love one another as we love ourselves. We love one another according to Jesus' command, as Christ has loved us. So who am I supposed to be unified with? Who is one of us? Who do I need to give the shirt off my back to when I'm in need? Who am I supposed to be working at relational harmony with? Who do I stop everything for and say, I need to love this person as Christ has loved me right now? Church membership helps us answer these questions. It's a mechanism that tells us who the kingdom ambassadors are and who we are obligated to maintain unity with and who is with us on this mission. And when we're clear on these things, our unified witness becomes more defined. And the more defined it is, the less ambiguity we have in our witness, then the more clear the gospel we preach is going to be to the world around us the more people will see the glory of Christ on display and how we love one another and how we're unified with one another and how we die to ourselves and our preferences and our opinions all for the sake of maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So our fourth and final teaching point this morning, our otherworldly witness is threatened when our membership is not unified. Our otherworldly witness is threatened when our membership is not unified. If we don't do a good job of keeping up with who is going out the back and who is coming in the front our carelessness will translate into a compromised unity and a compromised unity translates into a compromised witness and if our witness is compromised then we're settling for less than Jesus prayed for us in terms of a strong witness built on divine unity So we have to reject the temptation we've fallen into into the past and many churches have fallen into to assume that membership is nothing more than record keeping and that there's very few spiritual ramifications for not tending to it vigilantly. We've got to recognize that church membership is an ordinary means that God will use to give the local church an extraordinary witness that will stand out like an oasis in this tribalistic divided culture. So with that stated, I'm going to close up with kind of a what now. I've mentioned over the last two weeks the problem that we have here um, where if you look at our church role, we have like 500 more people on the roll than attend the church okay? That's not something that happened overnight. That's something that happened over decades, okay? Um, no need to beat anybody up about it. No, no need to, to sit hanging our heads and going, Whoa, how did we get here? And woe is me. I'm an unclean man. I live among an unclean people, okay? Like, we don't need to do that. Um, we just need to come up with a plan for how to fix it, make sure that we get it right. So let me tell you what has been done as we close up this series, In late 2019 and early 2020, convicted on this issue, for many years really, I collected information from four other churches who had been through similar situations. And I reviewed the process those churches used to pare their church roll down to reflect the active membership of their church body so they would know who to be unified with. Spent some time talking with our Constitution and Bylaws Committee about whether or not changes needed to be made in those documents to reflect how we want to move forward. So right around the end of February 2020, we were all fired up. We like we got a plan, we're ready to deal with this. And then March 2020, we, got, we all got introduced to this lovely little thing called COVID-19. And those plans were, were sidelined. But as we came to 2022, when the long winter of COVID seemed to be winding down, I felt sure that it was time for us to move forward again. This time, I started by again meeting with our Constitution and Bylaws Committee. We didn't really see a need to change anything at that time or bring anything to the church. So my next step was to meet with our deacons. And as I met with our deacon body, I came to them because they are called to be gap fillers. We have a gap here. We have an area where we need some help. So I go to these men who you all have nominated and elected as servants of our church and say, "Men, I need a few guys willing to serve with me on a team where we can work together to try to get this thing straight. Three men came forward, David Kramer, Wayne Powell, and Michael Holloway. I took that as a clear green light from God because those are three of the godliest men that I know. When those three walked out of the woods and said, we are your three, okay, I said, all right, this, this we can do. And in the last couple of months, we've spent time gathering multiple sets of data that attract uh, attendance, participation, we have the membership role itself. And together, we're beginning the process of trying to rectify our church role. Now, that's what's been done. Here's what's to come. I want you to understand that as we go through this process, we will be very slow. We will be methodical. We will be patient. If you are a person who likes things to move, you're just like, let's get it going here. Type A personality. Boom, boom, boom. Check it off the list. You might get frustrated with me or us or just in general in the next couple of years because we're going to go slow. And here's why. It would be real easy to come up with a slick process and say, let's fix the church role in three months. And as we tend to the process, we hurt people. We want to try to make sure that we not only care about a good process, but we care about people. When I thought that, na- that, that, that number of 500, that's not just names on papers. Those are souls, right? That's why we're doing this, Many of those souls are walking around out there, maybe don't go to any church, and they think, I'm good with God. My name's on that that church roll down there at Seaford Baptist. A soul, right, that could be in danger of eternal judgment. So I want to go to that soul in the midst of the process and say, we're worried, and we want you to come back. And so the process is going to take time because it can't be more important than the people that we are seeking to bring back, and the people whose names are on the roll. So we'll go through the roll in stages. We'll start with people that have died, because sometimes people go to heaven, but they stay on the church roll. All right? It happens. So we'll start with people who have passed away, or people that we cannot find. Um, What we're going to do is we're going to send out letters. I'll get to that in a moment. But as we try to contact some of these people, we know we're going to get a lot of return-to-sender action (laughs) happening. And at that point, we will probably come to you all on Wednesday nights and have a little court board up with the names of people and go, do you know these people? Can you help us find these people? And so that's stage one. People have passed away, people we're trying to track down, but if we can't find them, we do all of our due diligence, we try our best and we can't find people, at that point we let them go and we take them off of our church roll through a church vote. Then we move to a second group. This would be people who have moved away. They live in Topeka, but they're still in our role here in Seaford. This can't be. You cannot be an active member of a church in Seaford, Virginia from Topeka, Kansas. You just can't do it. We have our church newsletter, we would love to keep sending that to people to keep them connected. We have church emails that we are happy to send to people to keep them connected. We want to put our social media out there to them to keep them connected. It's not that we don't want people to be connected and to have relationships with us, but we can't keep them on the church roll if they can't uphold the church covenant. Then we move to a third group. These are people who have not been here in years and they really have no connections here. Whoever they used to know here, they're not here anymore. They live around town, but they haven't been here in a very long time. They don't really keep up with anybody. That's the third group. Then we deal with the fourth group. This is where things, I recognize, I'm not a fool, all right? This is where things get emotional. These are folks that do not come, but you also eat with them, and you vacation with them, and you go fishing with them, and you belong to community organizations with them. It's the most painful group. We save it for last for a reason. And we go slow. But we lovingly encourage them to return to the body of Christ. But if they will not, then they can't stay in our number. They can stay in our friendships. They can stay as a target of our love and our prayers and our care. But they can't stay in our number. So again, we will attempt to contact all these folks by letter. Some, particularly those that do still have connections with us, will, will want to call before we send that letter out. But in this letter, we will first and foremost be inviting people back. Understand, this is church discipline, right? But the goal of church discipline is not punishment. It's always redemption. If the goal of church discipline is ever punishment, the church has gone real wrong. And they're not reflecting the heart of Christ. Our goal is redemption. Our goal is restoration. We don't want to punish people who've been away. We want to welcome back with open arms. We want to hug them. We want to connect them in what we're doing. And so each letter will provide an opportunity for people to respond after they have heard our heart and how we want them back, to let us know if they've moved away, to let us know if they are going to another church, to let us know if they have some issue that keeps them from attending, and to let us know if they want more info on how to reconnect, or to let us know if they simply want to come off the church roll. And we will remove people if there is either a refusal to return, a refusal to respond to the letter, or they just let us know, hey, I want to come off the church roll. And ultimately, my prayer is your pastor. Again, uh, a man makes a plan in his heart, but the answer from the, is from the tongue of the Lord. This is Proverbs 16.1. Okay? So we're talking about the plans of the heart here. We're not talking about the answer from the tongue of the Lord. But my, my, my plans in my heart, my prayer is your pastor, is that in around two years we're done with this. That we can move on in confidence that our church role better reflects the active spiritual life of our church. That it's in a better position to be a unified witness to our community that needs a unified witness. My prayer is that after these two years we'll see many of these folks return to our church. And of course part of this process is making sure we don't end up in this situation again. And so we want to um, have a plan to keep the church role healthy. And we're working on that too. The band's going to come back up right now um, as I close. There's more I could say about church membership in this series. There's more I could say about our evolving plan to address this issue in our church body. But what's most important to me is that you understand why membership matters from a scriptural perspective, that you see what it is, that you see our problem, and you understand the patient approach we're going to take to try to fix it. If we understand all that, then I feel like these last three weeks have been good and our goals have been accomplished. But let me challenge you on two levels as we close. First of all, I want to encourage you to think of somebody that used to attend here. Their name, probably still in the role. And I want to challenge you to call them this week and invite them back to church. Don't make it weird. Don't make it complicated, okay? Hey, uh, just calling you because God, or hey, I'm texting you if that's the sort of person they are, uh, because God laid your name on my heart. And I just wanted to see if you wanted to come to church with me Sunday, and maybe we get some lunch afterward like old times. We'll be back in Luke. I will not weird them out with a church membership sermon, okay? So uh, it'll be just Luke 22. But we don't have to wait on these letters to go out. You can contact folks now and let them know you want them to come back to church with you now. And if you do, please let me or Michael Holloway or David Kramer or Wayne Powell know if you know those men. (coughs) <coughs> or you could let Pastor Ben or Pastor David know so that we know that contact has been made. Secondly, I want to charge you to pray regularly about all this. Whether you are sitting here and you're like, finally, we're going to deal with this. Or you're sitting here and you're like, I don't know if this is important. Or you're sitting here going, I'm angry. I'm angry in my heart over this, okay? Wherever you're at, I want to challenge you to pray because we all have a part to play in this process through prayer. Pray that people would realize they're in the wilderness, and that they would come back to the fold of the Lord. Pray that our words and actions would be seasoned with salt and soaked with mercy and grace. And pray for our church. Pray that all this would give us a greater unity, which would give us a greater witness. And if you pray that way, you're praying in agreement with Jesus in John 17. Let's pray now. (coughs) Father, some of the best evangelists that I know are in this congregation, and I pray that you would give them, Lord, uh, just favor as they go to reach out to people that used to come that don't come anymore. Um, God, this is not about growing the numbers of our church. This isn't about um, uh, trying to be legalistic. Uh, This isn't about um, trying to be diligent record keepers. There are spiritual ramifications here, as we've seen over the last three weeks. It's about our unity. It's about our mission. It's about knowing who we are and um, and knowing that we are protecting, the Lord, uh, the gospel you've given us and being good stewards of it. And so I pray, Father, that uh, you would be with our people as they represent that gospel and they go out to uh, evangelize people that used to be a part of us, uh, people that maybe used to attend here 10, 15 years ago, five years ago, whenever. And uh, I pray that you would just... Um, Father, your Holy Spirit would go ahead of them and prepare the hearts of those people to receive those phone calls and those invitations back, and then ultimately the letters that we will send um, to those who need them. Uh, Father, I pray for the our administration. We are dealing with a church role that um, has been kept um, from everything from pencil and paper to um, old, outdated technology to new, updated technology, and a lot can get lost in translation, Lord. Give us wisdom as we navigate the administrative side of it, and then finally, Lord, uh, I just pray that in the end, we would have a, a greater church health and a greater unity and a greater witness, and that this process, Lord, would be as painless as possible, and yet, Father, for that which is right, we are willing to suffer a bit, and so um, we are here for it. Just pray that you would guide us because we want to follow close to you. We do not want to be on our own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.